Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Afua Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. In the summer of 1549, hundreds of people in Devon and Cornwall began remonstrating against changes being imposed by King Edward VI and his protector, Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset. In some places, people were so upset that they turned to violence. As frustrations grew, more and more people joined the so-called rebels who dug in just outside of Exeter and went on to face battle with forces sent by the king. Traditional histories of this event call it the Prayer Book Rebellion, suggesting that people were angry with the new Book of Common Prayer, written by Thomas Cranmer and introduced by Edward VI for Protestant worship. But names can be misleading, for there was a great deal more to the rising than the new Prayer Book. In fact, this podcast will challenge much of what we think we know about the Prayer Book Rebellion, calling it the Western Rising, Today's guest will share fresh ideas about its causes, events and aftershocks, as well as the stories of some of the individuals who were part of such a murderous midsummer. I'm delighted to welcome Mark Stoyle, Professor of History at Southampton University. Mark's research interests span the English Civil War, witchcraft and Tudor rebellions, and he's currently one of the co-investigators on a major Arts and Humanities Research Council-funded project, Conflict, Welfare and Memory, maimed soldiers and war widows of the English Civil Wars 1642-1700. He served on the Council of the Royal Historical Society, on the editorial advisory panel of the BBC History magazine, and has appeared on more than 50 radio and TV programmes. Today, he'll be talking to us about his book, A Murderous Midsummer, The Western Rising of 1549, which was published this year. Professor Mark Stoll, thank you so much for joining me on Not Just the Tudors. I'm really excited to talk to you about this, and I think it's going to be a topic that is really inspiring for many people. Now, some people will know that this rising has captured the attention of a good number of historians, some of whom I think taught you. So what compelled you to revisit it? What remained mysterious to you? 
I think the compulsion, first of all, is down to spirit of place. I grew up in the rural Mid-Devon, which is really where the whole thing started. So the memories of that rising and whispers of it have been around me all my life. That's what got me interested in the first place. And I would say the second thing is that although the story seems quite familiar... There's not that much information that survived. Like so many Tudor rebellions, as soon as it was over, everyone involved in it tried to scamper away and keep their involvement as quiet as possible. So it's tantalising in a way. We don't have that many sources. We don't know as much as we would like about what really happened. And I think that's another thing that always really intrigued me about it. I love that sense of it being whispered almost in the trees around you, you know, that people were talking of it. That's a wonderful idea. And it also absolutely speaks to that connection between geography and history, that we overlook at our peril. Absolutely. I think that's always been a part of history that's really fascinated me. And I think a second thing is that when I was a teenager, I worked as an archaeologist in Exeter. And of course, Exeter was at the centre of the rising. It was besieged during the conflict. And so I think the memories of it are quite strong in Exeter. The great chronicler of the Western Rising lived in Exeter himself. The city walls, which I worked on as an archaeologist, were actually reinforced against the Western rebels. I think in that way, it's almost been following me around all my life. To be honest, you mentioned earlier about previous scholars of the Rising. The village I grew up in was where Joyce Ewings lived, who wrote about it, obviously, in the 70s and 80s. So there's that connection as well. Now, you argue that if we're going to understand this properly, we can't start in 1549. We need to go back a few years into the 1540s to listen out for the early rumblings or the foreshocks, as you call them, that all was not well in the West Country. So can you tell us how the story begins? Yeah, I think the story really begins with the Reformation Parliament. That's where I would see the start of it. And the 1536 protest in the North, I think that had huge shockwaves against the Reformation in the North of England. That had shockwaves throughout the whole country. I think a lot of people who didn't actually take part were nevertheless watching what was going on. And I think that was a kind of a message to people in the West Country that it wasn't just them who felt that these changes were going far too far and far too fast. There's hints of sort of sympathy for the 1536 protesters in the West Country as well. And I think as the pace of Reformation becomes even faster, and obviously that's particularly the case after Henry dies and Edward comes to the throne, I think that sort of sense is enough. It's building up here in the West Country. And I think it was one of the most religiously conservative parts of the country. Most scholars believe that Protestantism is beginning to put down quite a foothold in the southeast and around London, but in the north, in Wales even more, and in Devon and Cornwall, that's really not the case until quite late. Yes, I was at an event yesterday and somebody asked that sort of classic question that you answer as an undergraduate or an A-level student, perhaps, you know, how Protestant was England by? This is the end of Henry VIII's reign and not at all really is the answer. But (laughs) this question of how easily people were converting is a really potent one and absolutely the heart of this story. Can you outline then how the rising grew and although you've mentioned Exeter already, perhaps you could include some of the key locations in the West Country for those who are unfamiliar with the region. One of the other things that's so fascinating about this rebellion is it begins in a very obscure place in a very remote village in the heart of Mid-Devon, Samford Courtney, which is still very small today and very peaceful, just to the north of Dartmoor, in what's often called the deep countryside of Devon, to the north of the moor. So it's an unusual place for a rebellion to begin. But once the protests against the new prayer book start there, 
there. It spreads very quickly indeed. It quickly seems to sweep up almost the whole of Devon. And then, at least in my reading of things, it then shoots across the Tamar into Cornwall. That's significant because we were talking earlier about the reasons for the West Country's religious conservatism. And I would say that's very strongly connected with the idea of Cornishness and Cornish culture. The fact that in Cornwall, quite large numbers of people are still speaking Cornish means that they're almost isolated or insulated, should I say, from the effects of the Reformation in just the same way that the Welsh are. And the Cornish had already risen the year before, in 1548, against the religious changes. So now that rebellion had been put down fairly swiftly by the government. But now when a second big rebellion takes place in Devon, it quickly spreads into Cornwall and the Cornish rise for a second time within just over a year. So is it fair to say that Cornwall, because of its separate sense of heritage, was a place that could easily be mobilised into rebellion? Yeah, that's my view. I feel that in just the same way that Tudor Wales has its own culture and 95% of people still speak Welsh, I think you could say the same to a lesser extent of Cornwall in our period, and that it does have a sense of a separate identity and a separate culture. And the Reformation can be presented or seen as an attack on that culture, as a way of almost imposing Englishness on the Cornish by force. And one of the things that's always intrigued me about this rebellion is that in their articles, the rebels actually include that famous statement, we will not receive this new prayer book, those of us, the Cornish, who speak no English. So, you know, the idea of this English prayer book being imposed, they see it almost as a kind of cultural imperialism, I would say. I've been in a taxi in Cornwall before now and been told as I was going over the border to get the train, oh, now we're back in England. <laughs> so I think the idea you know, dies hard. Now, at what point did the events that were taking place in the West Country come to the attention of the king, or more appropriately at this point in time, given that he was only 11, to his protector, Edward Seymour, Lord Somerset? And how did the government react? Again, there's an interesting sort of story there, I think, because it used to be thought that the rebellion actually began in Cornwall in June. And obviously, I'm arguing in this book that it actually began rather later in Devon in June. So there has been a kind of a tendency in the historiography to say it took ages for news of this to reach London and Protector Somerset acted very slowly and so forth. But in fact, he seems to have been informed very quickly of what was happening at Samford Courtney. And he did respond with alarm and instantly sent people down to deal with it. But I think at that stage, they presumed it would be a relatively small village protest of the sort that you could see in other parts of England. 1549, there are a lot of small rebellions elsewhere in England. But this one simply takes fire, takes off and becomes the most serious threat of all the ones that Somerset is faced with at this time. And his instant response is not nearly as slow as some people have argued. But he probably doesn't react quickly enough because this thing just grows and takes on a force of its own. And then he really does begin to panic, I would argue. Just a little aside, how do you think that the historiography has got it so wrong about that date? I mean, you're arguing that really it's a month later than we've always thought. Yes, what happens is all the sources agree that the rebellion begins in Samford Courtney on the 11th of June. But there is a, an indictment that was penned when the rebel leaders were being tried that suggests that the Cornish Rising began in Bodmin on the 6th of June. And having gone back and looked at all the other evidence again, that's the only piece of evidence which suggests that the Rising in Cornwall took place before July all of the other evidence we've got about the Cornish Rising suggests it's early July. And I wasn't the first historian to notice this. So quite an obscure writer almost 100 years ago said this date in the indictment may be wrong. And I think it is wrong. And I think that's what has misled historians over the years. 
particularly because, as I say, the evidence about the early stages of the rising is so scant. We are literally dealing with just a few fragments. Right. So apart from that event of the 11th of June, we really need to be looking towards the rising, if we're trying to date it, as being something that's happening in early July. Basically, it's taking off in Devon in June. I think it probably spreads across the border into Cornwall in late June, early July, and that the actual gathering of the Cornish rebels in Bodmin took place on the 6th of July. So a few weeks after things actually kick off, if you like, at Sanford Courtney. Now, you said a little bit earlier that you thought that this was the most serious threat for Somerset and his government as de facto ruler during this period of time. And actually, your work suggests that this is the most catastrophic episode to have occurred in the West Country between the Black Death and the English Civil War. Tell me why. I think just in terms of sheer casualties and dislocation, obviously the Black Death is a catastrophe across the whole country. After that, yes, there are plagues, there are other sort of outbreaks of disease, there's obviously the Wars of the Roses, there are other sort of struggles, but I would argue there is nothing that affects the fabric of the two southwestern counties as much as this. There's a huge number of people killed, we think between three and 4,000. And when you think how much smaller the population of the West Country was at that time, in proportionate terms, that's an enormous loss. And it's also enormously divisive because my argument is that most of the local people either support the rebels or sit quietly and just wait to see what happens. There are some loyalists, however, and in that way, the two counties are divided much, I would argue, perhaps as France was in the Second World War between resistors and collaborators and those who are not sure what to do. So it leaves this terrible sort of scar or bitter memory of division. And certainly there hasn't been a conflict, such a bloody conflict, with eight separate military engagements, certainly right up until the Civil War, I would argue. So I don't think that's an over-the-top claim. Could you just talk us through a little bit of the chronology from early July so that we get a sense exactly of what happened for those who don't know the history here. Yeah, the rebels arise in mid-Devon in June. Very quickly, the rebellion spreads across almost the whole of Devon. And initially, they write to the city fathers of Exeter and ask them to join hands with them, to join the protesters. But the town governors of Exeter decide not to do that. Exeter is one of the few communities in the West Country which has a sort of sizeable evangelical minority by this stage. And also the city fathers, for various reasons of their own, do not want to join the rebels. And so they decide to hold the city against them. And at the very beginning of July, the Devon rebels arrive outside Exeter and besiege it. And then, in my argument at least, they are joined then a few weeks later by a large contingent or an army, a host of rebels from Cornwall. So at the climax of this rebellion, when it's reaching its absolute height, there is a huge siege of Exeter with perhaps as many as six or 8,000 rebels besieging it, and the city desperately holding out and imploring the government to send aid. And what do the government do? Huh. They have problems of their own. They have a war with the Scots in the offing. There's trouble in France. There are also small risings taking place for various different reasons all over the kingdom. And there's also Kett's Rebellion in East Anglia. So they have a huge number of things on their plate. Initially, they send down Lord Russell, who's the sort of premier nobleman of the West Country. But he has a very small force when he arrives and he cannot persuade local men to join him. He just has a few gentry retinues and that's it. And so he hovers on the border of Devon and Somerset, not able to advance to Exeter. And he too is then writing to the government, desperately asking them to send him mercenary soldiers, in effect, to bolster his forces. And that's essentially what happens, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. 
In the end, the government is able to put down most of the smaller rebellions which are taking place in other parts of the country, particularly in Oxfordshire, where there was another serious religiously conservative rebellion, and they dispatch further troops from the southeast to Russell's aid, most of which are actually foreign soldiers, Albanians, Italians, Burgundians, and these are obviously dogs of war, they're really experienced fighters. And the first contingents of these foreign mercenary troops arrive just before the Western rebels advance on Russell's own position at Hunnerton. And one of my arguments in the book is that if those mercenary soldiers had arrived two or three days later, almost certainly I think Russell would have been swept aside. And if the rebels had really pushed through with that momentum, I suspect a lot of people would have joined them in Dorset, Somerset, Wiltshire. It's a really fascinating counter-historical narrative, actually, what could have been? Just the matter of days there that things may have been very different. Yeah. One of the things that's always intrigued me about this, Susanna, is that a lot of historians have tended to slightly write the Western rebels off, say they were ignorant peasants, they were standing in the way of the future, Protestantism was bound to win, but it is, things were much more on the, sort of on the cusp in 1549. And one of my arguments, really, is that although I don't believe the Western Rebellion started... It wasn't started by court conspirators, as Elton claimed the Northern Rebellion was. But I do think that once things got underway, there were actually quite serious political players who would have liked to have seen Mary being brought in as regent, who thought we could use this rising as a way of perhaps getting rid of Somerset's regime, putting Mary in as regent instead, obviously the Catholic Mary. And I think that might have really altered the whole course of history. One of the things that's particularly intrigued me about the Rebels articles is that they call specifically for Cardinal Pole to be brought back from Rome to be made the first or second of the King's Council. As Pole is the champion of English Catholicism, he and Mary had actually been spoken about as an item in the past that they might have been married. And just the fact the rebels asked for that, I think, shows how radical what they're after really is. They want a complete refashioning of the English government in a Catholic direction. And I think it's so important what you're doing in terms of bringing this to light, because it seems to me that we've had a historiography that was dominated by this kind of inexorable sense of the rise of Protestantism, which is in itself a kind of inheritance from the 19th century and testifies to ideas about Britishness. We can chart it back down the centuries to the glorious revolution, so-called, and all the rest of it. And actually, it's only really in recent decades that historians have really tackled that and said, actually, the Roman Catholic Church was very strong in this country. We can't just argue that it worked out as it did because it was destined to happen in some way. Yeah. Looking at it from a West Country perspective instead of, if you like, from a London perspective, It almost seems the other way. I think it would have seemed almost impossible for people to imagine in 1530 that the Catholic faith would be toppled so quickly. I've been really influenced by the work of Christopher Haig and George Bernard, and most of all, I suppose, Eamon Duffy, to just say, let's stand back and look at this from the point of view of the evidence. Duffy's book on Moorbath is one of my favourite books. I think it's a brilliant book. And I think that helped to inspire what I've been doing in my own book as well. One of my favourites too. (laughs) I named my book, frankly, in sort of homage to it, My Voices of Nîmes. I did wonder, actually, when I read that, if you'd had that in the back of your mind. (laughs) But one thing I'm interested to ask you, you have talked about this as the Western Rising, and traditionally it was called the Prayer Book Rebellion. What would people have called it at the time, or did it depend who you were? 
Absolutely did. And yeah, I was intrigued by the terminology because when I was a schoolboy, when I first heard of it, it was always called the Prayer Book Rebellion. That's the name that everybody down here uses for it. And most historians do as well. As a teacher at the university, I've often set the question, what were the main causes of the Western Rising? And students will say, it was called the Prayer Book Rebellion, so obviously it was about the Prayer Book. But I only discovered a few years ago, that's a relatively recent coinage. So the earliest date that I can find that title being used is 1916. So as you say, at the time, it was known by very different names. And again, as you say, completely depending on what side you took at the time. So to Edward, to Somerset, to all of the loyalists and the evangelicals particularly supported them, this was rebellion and treason, pure and simple. So it would be called things like the Great Rebellion in the West the Devonshire Rebellion, the Great Rebellion, this sort of thing. Whereas for local people, most of what we know about what they called it comes from later on when they were obviously being very careful what they said. Often they use very neutral terms like the business that was in the West or the late business in the West parts. But the term that most people seem to have settled on is the commotion. And I think this acknowledges the fact of disruption and trouble and turmoil, but it doesn't really have that same sense of levelling blame. But you raise a fascinating question because if you had asked the leaders of the rebels at the time, what are you calling this protest? I would love to know what they would have replied. Those are wonderful Tudor phrases, the late business that was or the commotion. So what should we be thinking in that kind of classic question about the causes of the rising then? If it is not just simply the prayer book rebellion caused by the Book of Common Prayer and the religious issues are more complex and variable, what should we know about them? I certainly wouldn't want to write out the prayer book. I think that is central. I think the decision to impose a new prayer book in English was the thing that lit the flame. So I would still see that as being the key trigger and one of the central causes. But again, it's the whole collection of things that have been done in religious terms over the 19 years preceding the rebellion. I think it's an accumulated sense of grievance at all of those religious changes and a sense of an attack on the old faith as a whole. The prayer book almost comes as the last straw. So I would argue that's at the heart of the rising. But I think in Cornwall, it probably is tied in with this sense of ethnic difference, cultural difference, a sense that they're having English now imposed on them every week in their church. There is no escape from it. Cornish was already a language that was on the edge, if you like. And I think it was pretty apparent that this was going to push it into obscurity. So I think that has a part to play too. Should we think about this being about a sense that removing the religion that they've known for centuries is kind of tearing up the social fabric? It's not just theological. Yes, absolutely. I feel that's the case because students will often say to us, surely people didn't care so much about the intricacies of theology. And I think that probably is true. But as Duffy and others have shown so well, it's the sense of a whole religious life and a culture that is built around symbols and images and traditional things that one is familiar with. All of that is being ripped up. Also, new families are being imposed, sort of evangelical leaning families are now being put on the commission of the peace. Some of the old established families like the Arundels in Cornwall are being left out. There's also a sense of illegitimacy. Is this nine-year-old boy really ruling or has he been surrounded by a group of unscrupulous, greedy evangelicals or perhaps even pretending to be evangelicals for their own greedy purposes who are simply ventriloquising the king? So I think the fact that this is happening in a royal minority gives it a greater sense of legitimacy as well. 
Yes, and that is absolutely consistent with the Pilgrimage of Grace when people are commenting on who's advising the king, that are they of the right sort of stature? Is he actually imposing his will? Is he being led in the wrong direction? That's only going to be amplified when you've got a minor on the throne. Exactly. I think that was believed by many people at the time. In a way, it's quite hard to believe of Henry VIII. It would be so easy to believe of Edward. And of course, again, going back to the pilgrimage, just as with that demonstration, there are a series of other things that are feeding into this as well. There are financial exactions coming down the line. There's the sheep tax. There's the new tax on cloth. Those things are obviously feeding into these disturbances, but I wouldn't see them as being at the centre. I would see them as being add-ons, if you like. know that beans were once considered to be an aphrodisiac, or that cornflakes were invented to have precisely the opposite effect. Join me, Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex, scandal and society, a new podcast from History Hit, where I, Kate Lister, ask the questions about the stuff we didn't learn in school, or sex ed. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern right up to now. Listen and subscribe to Betwixt the Sheets, wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Historians in the past have commented on the rising being caused by class antagonism. Now, I react strongly to the word class in the 16th century. <laughs> I've had enough exposure to Andy Wood and his work. But you make the very interesting point that it's kind of been retrospectively branded as that. Can you explain this? That's another thing that's really intrigued me about this, that there are lots of omnium gatherums of 16th and 17th century rebellions that say they were all about class. And I'm sure that some did have a very strong class element. And I think that Kett's rebellion, that's clearly much more the case. But in the West Country, it's remarkable how little sign of that there is. The rebels rise. Initially, they are all quite ordinary people, but it doesn't take long before gentlemen join them. And then when those gentlemen join them, they assume leadership positions. We can actually find quite a large number of gentlemen who are known to have served with the 1549 rebels in the West, which we can't find in East Anglia. And I think most tellingly of all, there is one famous phrase that was again repeated in one of the indictments that was brought against the rebel leaders when they were being tried in London in what were effectively show trials. 
The people who are being tried in London in January 1550 are actually three gentlemen and a yeoman who had led the Western rebels. But one of the things that the rebels had been charged with doing in the indictments against them is having shouted, kill all the gentlemen. Now, if that was the case, it's slightly schizophrenic of these three gentlemen to be leading a group of rebels shouting, kill all the gentlemen. And so I've always been suspicious about it, particularly because virtually no gentlemen are killed or harmed during this rising, apart from in the fighting in the field. And what really made the hair stand up on the back of my neck is when I realised that in the indictment against Ket, exactly the same words are used. And I think the Crown's lawyers simply took those words, kill all the gentlemen that were already in the Ket indictment, if you like, and added them to the one against the Western rebels. Because the two groups of rebels were actually tried together, even though they had no connection. That's so interesting. Because when you were saying that, I thought, well, yes, of course, that's Ket's rebellion. That's what's going on there. But it doesn't seem to be what's going on here. But they're trying to tar them with the same brush. That's my view. And they succeeded brilliantly because that view then held sway for centuries. And so the rebels in the West have been seen as crazed class warriors, desperate to kill gentlemen and women. But really, there is no sign of that. They capture large numbers of gentlemen and women and none of them are killed. And none of them are even very seriously harmed apart from... One man who's said to have been killed at the beginning of the rebellion, but the evidence for that is not very strong at all. We think he was killed, but we don't know when. We don't know if he was killed because he was a gentleman or because he was trying to put down the rebellion. It certainly doesn't seem to be evidence of class war. Is it possible to identify different aims between the different kinds of people who took part, or is that not possible to extract? I think it is. We have to face the fact that because this is essentially a cry of protest from right across those two counties, there will be lots of different interest groups involved. And I think at bottom, as we've already discussed, it is a protest by ordinary people against religious change. But I think, again, as we've discussed, there's a kind of Cornish element to this, where a lot of the Cornish protesters are wanting to protect not just their traditional religious way of life, but a kind of cultural element to that as well. And then I think beyond that, there are also gentlemen either getting involved or agitating from behind the scenes or simply just not doing anything to suppress the rebels. And they don't like Somerset's government. They don't like the intrusion of these new evangelical JPs. They would like to see a return possibly to what they would see by now as Henrician normality or even something before it. And one of the things I'm arguing towards the end of the book as well is that the Arundel family, who are the most powerful family in Cornwall, are actually increasingly keen to see Mary brought in as regent and to perhaps bring that about in some way. Do you think that Mary was actually involved in the Rising? I hear that there are rumours about that. As you will know, Protector Somerset believes that is the case, and he castigates Mary for being hand-in-glove with not only Kett's rebels, but the Western rebels, and she angrily denies it and says that it's nothing to do with her. And there is no smoking gun to prove that there is. But what has really intrigued me about this, Susanna, is it's a slightly complicated story. But during the rebellion, one of the Arundel brothers, Sir John Arundel, is actually arrested by the government for encouraging the Western rebels and not supporting the government forces against them. And he's put in the tower. And his brother, Sir Thomas Arundel, who is related to Humphrey Arundel, who's one of the leaders of the Western rebels, he actually stands surety for his brother and tries to help him in these legal tangles. Now, after the rebellion is over and the rebels have been crushed, Somerset is very unpopular. There is a coup launched against him. Now, the man who seems to be behind it is Sir Thomas Arundel. Arundel is known to have had close links with the Lady Mary. 
he actually wanted to be taken into her service. We know that he broached the question of a coup against Somerset with Mary during the summer of 1549. And he and his brother, Sir John, are actually arrested later for being involved in the Western Rising in ways that are not made clear. And I think there are really fascinating sort of hints at a connection here. And I suspect that Mary may have been doing things, but at a remove, and that she had agents who knew very well what was going on and were keeping her informed. But you may think that's too conspiratorial. I think that's fascinating, actually. And I think it's exactly the sort of thing that isn't going to leave much of an impress on the historical record. Yeah. One thing that really struck me about this is that Humphrey Arundel is the most important of the rebel leaders. He's the man who leads the Cornish army and he is actually apprehended by the government after the rebels have been defeated and he's taken to the tower and questioned, interrogated, tried and eventually he is condemned to be executed. And just before he is executed, he has a final sort of interview with his interrogators and it's immediately after that Sir Thomas and Sir John Arundel are arrested by the government. And I wonder if Humphrey tried to offer them up in a last desperate bid to save his own life. Seems very plausible. I know that there I'm moving into the realms of speculation, but I would love to have your opinion on this. There is a letter which is terribly hard to read that was written in January 1550, where somebody says that Sir John Arundel, the head of the Arundel House who was during the summer of 1549, is in prison still in London. And his pretty captain is there alongside him. And I think that's Humphrey Arundel. I think Humphrey Arundel, his cousin, is being presented as John Arundel's pretty captain, the man, if you like, who is leading the rebellion on his behalf. But again, whether that's right or not, I'm not sure. It's impossible to say, but it's certainly plausible. I've been intrigued by this because, again, there has been a sense to write the Western rebels off as just unlettered rustics, no idea what's going on at the centre, trying to do something that's utterly impossible. But they were making links with people who really had connections to Mary and did have a sort of a high politics role. The whole thing takes on a rather different aspect. Doesn't it just? It completely turns it on its head. You mentioned earlier that there were people who were sort of watching from the sidelines who were not involved in the rising. How were they reacting? I think this is one of the most interesting things, that when this protest kicks off in the little village in Sanford Courtney, it's led by yeomen, essentially, people who are below the level of the gentry class, those sort of cock de village type people. And you would have imagined that the justices of the peace would put this down fairly swiftly because there doesn't seem to be a huge number of people gathered there. But they don't. They talk to the protesters, they tell them to disperse and they don't. The JP simply ride off again. And John Hooker, the sort of stoutly evangelical chronicler of the West Rebellion, in one of his accounts, he says that they were too lily-livered to do anything about it. But in another unpublished account, he says that many of the Devon JPs actually sympathised with the protesters and weren't going to do anything to stop them. And that's really what seems to happen with most of the gentlemen of the region. They don't get involved, but most of them don't defend the government either. They just simply sit on their hands and wait to see what's going to happen. And from the government's point of view, I think that's quite frightening. <laughs> It's the breakthrough that Ethan Shagan made when he was arguing that, you know, it's not just conformity and resistance. You've also got this, he talks about collaboration, but also it's that kind of way that people are not doing either of those things and actually therefore are kind of allowing things to happen around them. Precisely, yeah. To me, that's the main gentry response. Most of the Devon and Cornish gentry don't resist the rebels, but they don't actually lead them. I feel they just simply retired to their mansion houses and waited to see what would happen. 
I very much enjoyed the way that you set the Western Rising in a kind of long historical arc. So your last two chapters are Retribution and Aftershocks. Let's talk about Retribution first. What was the nature and scale of it? You've called your book A Murderous Midsummer. Is this the most murderous part of the story? It is. This is really brutal. The battles that are fought, once those mercenary soldiers arrive, the advantage is very much with the government. They're experienced, they're fighting men, they're really well armed, and they're up against huge numbers of really committed and angry local people, but who are not armed in the same way. So the whole series of military engagements that take place, they take a very heavy toll. There are very large numbers of rebels killed in each of these fights. And in one of the biggest, which is fought just outside Exeter to the east, when the Royal Army is trying to break through to leave the city. We're told that hundreds of the rebel prisoners who are captured in the first sort of onset of the fighting, then the royal commanders believe that fresh rebels are about to attack. So they simply slit the throats of all of their prisoners. And it looks as if that might be the worst massacre that we know to have taken place in West Country history. And so literally hundreds and hundreds of local men are killed on the battlefield. Most scholars believe it's between three and 4,000. And Hooker, who is our best authority, states quite bluntly it was 4,000 of the rebels were killed. So that's an appalling bloodshed by any measure. I'm pretty sure it is the most bloody rebellion of the whole Tudor period. Ket would be the only possible rival, I would say, in terms of bloodiness. Yes, I think Ket is 3,000. And also Ket's rebellion, there are not so many military encounters. One of the things that's always intrigued me about the Western rebels is that they're a bit like the Terminator. They just go on and on fighting till there's nothing left. They are absolutely determined to resist to the bitter end. Yes, that's a really interesting point. They're absolutely pushing on, that kind of sense of endurance. And you outlined a little bit already the sort of really quite seismic political effects of this rebellion. Do you think it's these aftershocks, as you term them, that really differentiate this from the other rebellions of the period? I suppose there are a number of things. I think one thing, we've talked quite a lot about the Pilgrimage of Grace, and I know you've studied that in depth. And I think that one of the things that sort of is motivating what's happening in 1549 is people saw what happened to the pilgrims. They rose up peacefully. They listened to the king. Henry tricked them. Then he struck like a tiger against their leaders and executed them. You'll have come across that famous Andy Wood quote that he's used in several of his pieces. We were promised enough and more than enough last time, but the more was a halter. In other words, we were hanged. And I think that image is in the back of the minds of the Western rebels. They think, we have got to defeat this government. We've got to beat them because if we don't beat them, our cause will be lost and they will punish us harshly. And indeed, in the end, they did beat them and they did punish them incredibly harshly. But I think this is a time when people are not going to be fooled anymore by those kind of promises. So given that sort of desperation, that intense perseverance, given the possible connection to Mary and given the way that this has been characterised by historians for far too long as being an uprising by peasants, how close in the end do you think the Western Rising came to success? I really think it was on a knife edge. I think if those mercenary soldiers hadn't arrived when they did, because again, one of the things about changing the chronology is that the old view of the Western rebels was that they had very limited horizons, All they could imagine was marching to Exeter, sitting down outside it and not doing anything else. And I think that may have been true of the Devon rebels when they first rose. But if you think the Cornish army actually rose much later than used to be thought, and it actually gets to Exeter very quickly, and then it advances on Russell at Hunnerton, it does make me think they have a much more sort of dynamic attitude than used to be thought. And if they could have pushed him aside, I think it's very likely that lots of people 
in the other western counties would have joined them. We know that there were people near Salisbury and in Hampshire who were actually planning to attack Russell from behind and join the western rebels. There are rumours later that people from Wales had offered to join them. If those things had happened, again you could argue that eventually Somerset has got a large force of mercenary soldiers, he would have beaten them in the end, and probably he would. I think there was a chance they could have won out. That's intriguing. It's such an incredible story, and you tell it so well in your book. You've undertaken forensic research, you breathe life into the individuals who make it up, and I wonder, are there any individuals who particularly stick with you long after you've finished writing? Oh yeah, there are lots. I've just named two. So one is obviously John Hooker, who is the chronicler of this. I've really grown up with John Hooker. When I was a teenage archaeologist, we used his work all the time to find out more about the city and its records and its history. And I'm a huge admirer of his. He saved the civic records of Exeter by organising them neatly and so forth so that we can still draw on them today. But also he was a propagandist. He was an evangelical. He saw the rebels as wrong, as misguided, as evil and bound to be defeated. And the fact that we've seen this rebellion through his eyes ever since it was crushed virtually means that we've always seen it with that very slanted viewpoint and that's one of the things I've tried to do in this book to use Hooker and absolutely respecting his source and how valuable it is but to try and look at other sources as well so Hooker without him we would know so much less but he's also given us a puzzle in that he's showing it from one particular angle so he would be one and I think the second one would be the man I refer to in a few places which is this mysterious character called Underhill so when the rebellion begins in Sanford Courtney, it begins when literally two of the sort of yeomen, the sort of the better off men of the village, accost the vicar and say, we don't like this new service. Are you going to read it to us again? And they eventually manage to persuade him not to do it and to go back to the old mass. And that's where the whole thing starts. And then soon after that, these two men, Underhill and Seagar, they become the first captains of the rebellion. And Underhill in particular, goes on leading the Sanford Courtney men all the way through the Rising. And eventually he is killed in the final battle, which takes place in Sanford Courtney, fighting on his own fields, desperately trying to keep this rebellion going that he started. And I think that he was really the most inspiring figure behind this. And it's really interesting that about a decade later, an Exeter man is grumbling to the city authorities about things. And he says, it has been rumoured that a new underhill will rise. And this made me realise that local people remembered it as Underhill's Rising. He was seen as the champion, but his memory has been so blotted out that we're not even sure of his first name now. And that intrigues me. Well, you've done such a great job of raising these people to life again, to recovering them, which is so important to begin to really see the past, anything like it actually was. And thinking about sources and thinking about what we remember and what, as Hilary Mantel said, you know, what remains in the sieve after the centuries have passed through is so crucial. You mentioned at the beginning that the rising is still very much in the public consciousness. Since you've been telling this new story of it, have you seen a change? Have you seen local people responding to this version of events? The book hasn't been out very long, so it's only been out for a couple of months. And I would imagine local people are reading it. And of course, I suppose it depends whether they find the arguments convincing or not. I'm sure you know much better than I do, Suzanne. Established narratives are very slow to shift. And I don't think I will ever stop people calling this the Prayer Book Rebellion. I think that's embedded in stone now, almost like the English Civil Wars. I think will probably always be called the English Civil Wars, though historians may try and give them different names. 
So how much of an impact this will make, I'm not sure, but I think certainly it will help resurrect some of these people. And I hope to bring more interest in some of the hidden leaders. And also, I'm hoping at least that the book will help to memorialise some of the places that are concerned with the rebellion. Because as you say, that sort of sense of place, I think is really important in history. And being able to go back to somewhere like Samford Courtney and see this is where this all began. I still find that very moving. Underhill, or the chief captain of the rebels, is supposed to have taken up his station in the tower of Samford Courtney Church. And how can I put it? Held court there. That was his little castle, if you like, from which he held court over the rebels. And recently I was lucky enough to go up the church tower. And again, I found that a really moving moment to think that he was here leading this rebellion from this space. And here I am today. I hope other people will be able to share that sort of sense. You'll have to convince the people of the West Country in the same way as the Reformation did, which is generationally. So you'll have to just introduce it to school children. And in 20 years time, everyone will call it the Western Uprising. Oh, it would be lovely. I'm not sure if they will. Rebellion has a better ring to it, don't you think? It's more exciting in a way. The reason I didn't use that, Susanna, is because I did feel that was very much the term that those who won would use to describe it. I don't think the Western protesters would ever have seen themselves as rebels. That's interesting. So in terms of looking back, we see it as a romantic term yes. to call them rebels, whereas at the time they would have considered it a slur. Exactly. And I think they genuinely believed, I think, that Edward was a boy who didn't know what was going on, and he was enthralled to evil puppeteers who were actually themselves, if you like, rebelling against the state. And that's why Mary, as an adult princess who everybody knew, was absolutely wedded to the old faith. I think they thought she would have been a much more appropriate regent and quasi-ruler until Edward became of age. Well, at least in this podcast and in your wonderful book, we're starting to tell a bit more of the real story, if that's the best thing to call it, of what happened in Cornwall and Devon in 1549. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about it. Thanks so much for all of your interesting questions. It's been lovely to have the chance to talk it through with you. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher, Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify. And please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.